Good morning, Paynton. Good to see you. Thank you for having me again to come and visit you. It's a pleasure and a privilege. Um, it's nice to be here with the family. I can gather you guess who they are. Uh, but some have gone out the back. I've, um, I've been asked, I've been given an open subject this morning. So I thought I'd bring something fairly topical, or what I feel is quite topical in the church at the moment, in the context of giving. Because we're living in a time when things are tough for many people. Now, I don't know your personal circumstance. You might be living in a very tough financial situation. You might be fortunate enough to not really have noticed, or in terms of not noticed, in terms of to care of the price of living and so forth. But wherever we are, we need to be mindful that whatever we give, we are only ever giving back the God who gave to us in the first place. And uh, I, I will take the moment to say this. It's not a criticism or a slight, but it's always easier for a guest speaker to say these things. The, the, the ability to be able to give your time and your energies to teaching the young people you have here is one of the greatest privileges that you can have and one of the most pressing challenges the church has. Because to see so many young lives in this church go out to the back is a great privilege. There are churches I would visit that would give their right arm for that. And to support those young families and to encourage those children in the Lord, there has to be folk to step up to do that. So do consider doing that, because otherwise we're losing our kids. We're losing our kids. And you might think you're too old, you're not. You might think that you haven't got anything to give. Go and read about Moses and Aaron. Seriously, consider it. Don't take it as a rebuke. There are probably people here that do it, and you haven't done it this week, but can I encourage you to do that? There's someone who works in education and a teacher and desperately passionate about seeing young people know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. If we don't respond to that challenge, we will lose that generation. So please consider that as I speak today about giving everything back to God. I've got a question for you, rhetorical to start with. I was. I. I think this should work. Is it going to? Is it going to wake up? Do I have to press a button? Oh, that was a noise. <laughs> no, that's me. That's me. That noise. Good noise, isn't it? But it's not. It's not having the desired effect. Um, as one man said. Next slide, please. Thank you. That's great. <laughs> a rhetorical question for you in terms of where does value come from? I grew up uh, with a father who was very interested in these things: stationary engines. If you don't know what a stationary engine is, it's as exciting as it sounds. <laughs> For it is an engine that indeed is stationary. It goes round and round and pop, 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 but it doesn't really do anything. Now, they were used in agricultural contexts 100 years or so ago, maybe even to drive maybe pumps or milking machines or things like this at farm. But weekend after weekend, through my childhood, my father and I would drive off to rallies, steam rallies, and some people would turn up with their very exciting tractors or their really exciting old cars or big steam engines, and we would go into the stationary engine enclosure, the ugly sister of the steam engine fraternity, and we would get out our, I say we, he would get out his stationary engine and two chairs, and there we would sit and enjoy, I think that was the word. Um, I would have been cynical at the time, actually now my father's long dead, I look back with rose-tinted glasses and think it wouldn't be lovely to go back, but we would look at our stationary engines. And when my dad died, or just before he died, 
it wasn't quite a deathbed experience, but it, it wasn't long before. He took me aside and he said, make sure while I'm gone, for he, knows, he knew his days were numbered, that you get in touch with Charlie, his mate Charlie, and make sure Charlie helps you sell those stationary engines because he knows how much they're worth. You see, to some people, these are just piles of junk. To others, they're objects of history. Some people, again, will look at them as things full of potential or just outdated technology, or relics of the past, or maybe just good for scrap value. But to my dad, and to his kind, these were incredibly valuable things. The value that we often put upon an object is in the eye of the beholder. So what's our value then? What value do we have? Well, we could consider melting you down and turning you into the elements that you contain. This is a, I think this is rather silly. I think it was published by a scientist. It was meant to be quite serious. But apparently you're worth about $1,868 based upon the different elements that you contain. So I don't suggest that we're going to sort of sell anyone. But if we did, and of course some of us, we have more elements in us than others. So... I don't want to suggest that my value is based upon my considerable bulb. Uh, of course, there is a better way to make money out of you. We could talk about the value of your organs. Um, if we want to flog all those off, they're worth even more. Apparently, your kidneys are worth $138,700. That seems very... I don't know if that's one or, or pair, in case you're considering going and sticking on eBay. I'm not sure. That's another way of looking at your value. What about the value of the earning potential that you will have over your lifetime based upon the education that you've had or the career that you'll have? Is that a way to value you? Or how about the value in terms of the taxes that you will pay, the contribution that you will have to society? Of course, all of this is nonsense because the value that we put on ourselves, the value we put on the things around us and what we can contribute has nothing to do with any of these things, really. Not on the elements, the compounds, the organs we have, our income, our savings, our taxation. The value that we have as human beings comes down to a very simple truth that we are created in the image of God the Omega Day, and every one of us is full of God-given potential to give back to his creation and his church. And we're going to read Psalm 24. Now, I'm going to do a northern uh, preacher's trick, because really, I only want to talk about the first verse, but we're going to read the whole thing. I will make a passing reference to the psalm as a whole at the beginning and concluding. But it's the first verse that we're going to, to concentrate on. Now, at our home church, St. Clair's Chapel in Somerton, sometimes we read the, the, the Bible uh, reading together. Is that something you ever do? Should we try it? Yeah? If you're like me and you're dyslexic and you get your words muddled up, don't worry. I'm the only one with a microphone, so I'm the only one who looks silly. If I go off east, okay, then you're probably right. Okay, so uh, let's try it together. Can you see it behind me, okay? Okay, right, we'll go at a nice sensible speed. Here we go. Follow along with me. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas 
and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. I told you I'd make a mistake, didn't I? Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, the King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Amen. Bible scholars call this psalm one of the psalms of ascent. And there's a little bit of um, debate as to exactly when these psalms of ascent were used, but there's not a lot of difference in it. They were either sung by worshippers, these psalms of ascent, as they ascended the road going up to Jerusalem, as they attended the, the pilgrim festivals, or, and it could be both, the Levite singers, the priests would sing them as they ascended the 15 steps to minister up to the temple in Jerusalem. But either way, they were used as people were preparing to go to Jerusalem or go to the temple into Jerusalem to worship. And the reason I've chosen this psalm to talk about this idea of giving everything back to God is because at the beginning it's a fantastic example. David gives us a fantastic example of the Christian order of things. The, that perspective that we need on who we are, on our value, and on God. So we're going to go through in quite some granular detail this first verse, and then we'll come back to the psalm sent at the end. So first of all, the earth is the Lord's. I can remember when I was at school, my chemistry teacher pointing up to the periodic table of elements above the prep room door and describing it in God's chemistry set. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it that way. There is nothing in this world at all that exists without being made up of those fundamental elements there on the screen. Some of them are absolutely essential for life. It just so happens here that those are in purple. Without oxygen or carbon and so forth, we couldn't have life as we know it. Some of them are immensely useful for the purposes of generating energy or allowing us to develop the technologies that we have today. But to continue to list the purposes of these elements is futile because even the weakest element knows that nothing has been made or can be made or will be made that will not be made up from those things on the screen. And David starts in his psalm at a place to so, so obvious to the Christian it barely feels worth mentioning. But it is so fundamental to our understanding of who we are the value that we have, and what we can give. The earth 
is the Lord's. If you were to go back and read other creation accounts that were written at similar times to Genesis, that is to say that there were other people in that age who were writing down how they believed the earth came to be. So many of them start with trying to justify where their god or their gods came from. It's called a theodicy. A theodicy is a writing which tries to explain where the gods came from. Genesis doesn't bother with a theodicy. It doesn't need to. Why? Because God wasn't created. God is eternal, always has been, always will be. Our God is the God which allows the second law of thermodynamics to be true. The second law of thermodynamics tells us that energy and matter cannot be created or destroyed unless it was created or destroyed by something or someone that doesn't obey the rules, that's outside of the universe and space and time, that is so powerful and all-encompassing and all-wonderful that he and he alone has the ability to say, let there be light, let there be matter, let there be stars and galaxies and planets and all things. At, the, at one stroke of his word, Everything that was ever to be came into being. Look at what John 1 says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, uh, and the word was God. I beg your pardon, I'll start again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him Nothing was made that has been made. Famously, the word that John uses for word there is Logos, Jesus. Jesus, who was there in the beginning with God, the second person of the Trinity, always has been and always will. As we may sing, hands that throng stars into space. And I invite you now to take your hands and to touch something around you. Try not, not to be the person next to you unless they're your spouse. But touch a chair, touch some material. Every single thing that is there that you are feeling now with your hands is created from these, this matter that was created at the beginning of the universe. That when God created all things, the materials in this wood existed in a different way in different forms, but they were there. The air around us, the carbon in our bodies, everything that may be was created at that point. Everything that we are, everything that we touch, everything that we have, all physical matter is God's. The earth is the Lord's. The, the solar system is the Lord's. The universe is the Lord's. Everything is the Lord's. And indeed, and everything in it. And everything in it. Not just all physical matter, but also all physical form. All physical form. There are some people who will tell us that the Earth as we know it is in what they will call the Goldilocks zone. A little bit closer to the sun and we get burnt up. A little bit further away from the sun and we'd be fried to a crisp. If gravity was a little bit heavier, we'd all be squished. If gravity was a little bit less, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have our atmosphere maintained as it was. Everything is just perfect. Everything is just right for life to happen. A coincidence, maybe? I can't believe it for a moment. The evidence of a creator God. 
an intelligent, loving creator God. And everything that we see and everything that we know about the physical form around us has been created just so by a God who loves and cares for his creation. The water cycle, which is the uh, image I put up behind me, may be something that we take for granted. Maybe sometimes we wish it would rain a little more. Maybe sometimes we wish it would rain a little bit less. But at the end of the day, all of these natural forms were created by God. Not just the elements, not just the compounds, not just the chemistry sets, wishing around in a, in a sea of, of nothingness, but a form in which we can thrive, in which we can live, and in which we can make progress. God did more than throw matter into a void. He brought, he brought life into all its fullness. The systems, the forces, all things that work together, the earth and everything in it is the Lord's. So there's nothing that we can't touch that God didn't create. There's nothing that could be part of us that God did not make. There's no system on earth that we can benefit from, whether it be the water cycle or the food that grows or the way that oxygen is regenerated by photosynthesis or any of these things at all. The very sun on our face and the warmth from our back is all, all of those things are created by the Lord our God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And this brings us to the next part of our, of our verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and the world and all who live in it. The world, all nations. So there was a time when there was nothing. And the creator God, with Jesus at his side, spoke, and there was matter and there was form, and there was physical systems, and then, and then eventually, in time, there were nations, there were countries, there were, there were systems, the earth is the Lord's, and everything in it. And this verse, this whole verse, is a great example of what biblical scholars call synonymous parallelism. Wow, that's a great phrase, isn't it? Synonymous parallelism. It's the same thing that you say twice, but the second time, you say it slightly differently. Now, if you use this in everyday conversation, everything you say sounds slightly biblical. Let me give you an example. For breakfast this morning, I enjoyed Weetabix, the cereal I ate as the sun rose. No, don't worry, don't find it in your Bible. It's just an example of synonymous pessimism. Or how about this? Today, I drove my car to work. To Cheddar, did I guide my vehicle? Synonymous parallelism. The earth is the Lord and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So it sounds a little bit like David is just sort of saying the same thing twice, which he sort of is, but he pushes on a bit further because once the chemistry set had been created, once the form had been given, then there was form given to our life as citizens. We become nations, we become countries, we have those systems within. It says in Acts 17, from one man, he that is God created all nations throughout the whole earth. And Romans 13 tells us, there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Let me tell you that again. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. It is godly that there is order and purpose in our world. It is godly that there are systems. Now, there are some great leaders, and there are some horrendous leaders. 
There are some godly leaders and there are some ungodly leaders. There are some godly nations and there are some ungodly nations. But the fact there is nations and a citizenship of countries is indeed a godly thing. So the wealth and the resources that we accumulate because of our nation are down to God. What's in your bank account? Where did it come from? Did it come from the free enterprise that you've enjoyed? That is down to God. Is it down to support you've received? That's down to God. Is it because of a paycheck you've received? It's down from a God. We exist in an orderly system that has godly roots, whether we acknowledge it or not. And it's here some people sort of lose the thread of seeing God in it, that they'll have a dualism, that they'll see God as good and governments as bad and corrupt. It's money generated from their own talents, or maybe it is, and, and we no longer have a connection with the, with the, uh, with the natural world. When we read about talents and tithes and so forth, it all seems so long ago. But no matter how different our world is now than those Old Testament times, or even those New Testament times, the fact that we exist in a nation, and we've got money in our pockets, we've got time on our hands, maybe, we've got resources we can use, is all down to God. So the earth is the Lord's, all of the matter, and everything in it. All of the systems and the forms and the world, all the nations, they are his too. And then finally, as we get to the end of that verse, and all who live in it. Job 34 says, it is I, that's God talking to Job, it is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands. What links you to the people around you? When Ruth was in the maternity hospital in Yeovil, giving birth to Edith, I was there, like a good husband, wasn't I, love? I was there, yeah, for some of it, yeah. Well, you know, I needed a bit of a kit, last 20 minutes, yeah. <laughs> they, they were the most important 20 minutes, weren't they? Anyway, I, 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 um, I did have a bit of clothing on, didn't I? I had a towel on my head, so I didn't want to see. But I was there. Go on, love. Go on. That's it. And whilst I was trying to, um, whilst I was trying to sort of, you know, not think about the business end too much and think hopefully we'll be out of here soon, it was dawning on me that in Yeovil Maternity Hospital, there are, is it four or five delivery rooms? It's not many. It's, it's four or five. And I started to think, as I was sort of standing in there, maybe Edward was born in here. Maybe Harry was born in here. I wonder, I can't remember which maternity, which maternity suite they were born in. And then I started to think a little bit more and thought, maybe, maybe I was born in here. And I looked around for the blue plaque and I couldn't see one. I thought, <laughs> maybe, maybe it was down the hallway then. And I thought, well, my brother, or maybe Ruth was born in here, or sisters. Maybe, maybe one in four of the kids they went to school with were born in this room, on average. Who knows? It's funny, isn't it, the things that tie us together, those common experiences. Of course, as Christians, what ties us together so strongly is our, is our siblinghood, our brotherhood, our sisterhood in Christ, that we are children of God through faith in Jesus. And that is so important. And I don't want to say but, as in, but that's not important, because it is. However, I want you to notice that David says quite rightly, all who live in it are the Lord's. All. Everyone. 
those who acknowledge Jesus and those who haven't. Those who acknowledge God as their saviour and those who don't. In some way, every one of us, whether we have faith or not, are the product of God. Now that's not to say that all will be saved. That is a different question indeed. But there is no one that exists that doesn't come from those things that God has put in place. The matter, the physical form, the systems there are, the nationhood, everyone in some way is a child of God, whether they have faith or not. And therefore there is nothing, nothing that we have in our pocket or our bank account or freedom of time to serve that we have or resource or gift or talent nothing that we have that we can give in any way at all that came from our own merit our own intelligence our own cleverness our own resources all of it came from God and therefore if you're in a time and there will be people in this room now I know and you're struggling because the money in your pocket isn't going as further as it, as it once was or the the time that you had doesn't seem to stretch like it does or the the willingness to or the energy to serve doesn't seem to be there like it was when you are younger don't feel rebuked or told off but go back to prayer thank god that everything that you have has come from him from the bottom up from the ground up absolutely 100% and ask him again to give you that compulsion or that desire or that wisdom to recognize what it is that you need to give to give back to him maybe it's that money or time or resources those fruits back to him that maybe you haven't been able to give or felt unable to give for a while it's very tempting when things are hard to try and hold on to things but remember when the Israelites had the manna and they kept it overnight, they hung on to it. What happened to it? It went bad. It went bad. It went bad. And there's a huge temptation for us to do that, to hold on to that time and that resource that we have. When we do it goes bad, when we give it back to God, then we give it back to the one who gave it to us. And that takes me just to a, a little postscript that I want to mention if we can just hit the next slide there thank you a little postscript I did say that I wanted to go back to that that psalm I just want to read a few verses there I should say verse 6 at the end not 36 who may ascend David asks who may ascend the mountain of the Lord who may stand in his holy place the one who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God, they will receive a blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Whether this psalm was sung as they walked up the hill to Jerusalem or walked up to the temple itself, the meaning there is still pretty sharp. Who can do this? Who can approach this most holy place? And David's answer seems very mo fairly moralistic to start with. Well, it's easy. The one who can do it has clean hands and a pure heart who does not trust in an idol. Who of us have never trusted in an idol? In other words, when it comes to giving, who of us have not withheld something that we regard as important? 
some money or some finance or some time or some resource that we know really we should have given to God? Who of us have not done that? I think the answer is none of us, myself included, most certainly. So the question brings on, who may ascend? Who can enter that most holy place? And of course, we now know the answer. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. The question was answered by the Logos, by the Word, by the very Son of God. He had good hands. He had a pure heart. He did not trust in an idol. He did not swear by a false god. He did receive the full blessing from the Lord and vindication for our sins from God. It is he who ascended. It is he whose death saw the curtain torn in two so that we, not by our own merits, but by faith in Christ, may be called righteous children of God. It's a question if you read it without Jesus. But when you read it recognising that we have a saviour, then it becomes a point of great liberation. Let's pray. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are completely, 100%, without a doubt, created and sustained and loved by you. There is nothing that we can touch that wasn't made by you at creation. There's no system in this world, this universe or force or whatever it may be that wasn't ordained by you. There isn't a nation on this earth that isn't known by you intimately, even those nations of which we are intimately concerned at the moment. And there isn't one of us here who wasn't, as Steve reminded us earlier on, knitted together in our mother's womb. Lord, help us to bear this in mind when we count our pennies, when we look at our diaries, when we consider our talents, when we think about what is it that we can give. Lord, give us the mentality and the mindset that we are not giving, we are merely giving back. Lord, help us to be people who are generous. Help us to be people who have open hands. Lord, help us to be people that learn to give in such a way that it hurts not so that we can be martyrs, but that so we can reflect the generosity and the goodness of our Saviour. Thank you that we may ascend to your holy place, not because of the things that we have done or tried to do, and not because of the things that we haven't done or failed in doing, but because, Lord Jesus Christ, you have made that way. You have vindicated us and declared us righteous before the throne of God. We thank you for these things. Lord, help it give us help that give us the perspective we need on the things we have in this life, even in these difficult days. In Jesus' name. Amen.